Welcome listeners. I'm Suzanne Feeney, a pharmacist at CE Impact. We are thrilled to partner with Dr. Wall each week to produce this podcast. We hope you'll continue to listen in every Tuesday. Episodes always drop by 5 a.m. And pharmacists, you can earn up to 26 hours of CE a year just by listening in every Tuesday. Today's podcast episode is supported by an educational grant from Zelia Pharmaceuticals, a specialty pharmaceutical company focused on providing important anti-infective treatments against serious and often life-threatening infections. Game Changers creates awareness of trends, laws, pharmacotherapy, and medical practice changes that can significantly impact pharmacy. Let's listen in to today's episode. Hello and welcome again to another episode of Game Changers Clinical Conversations. I am your host, Jeff Wall, Professor of Pharmacy Practice at Drake University uh, and Internal Medicine Clinical Pharmacist at Methodist Hospital in Des Moines. And uh, it is my honor this week to have uh, actually a colleague of mine uh, from Unity Point, uh, Dr. Kelly Cunningham, uh, who will be uh, helping me walk through uh, our, our topic this uh, t- today. And so, uh, hello, Kelly. Hey, thanks for having me. Not at all. Not at all. We'll, we'll uh, uh, definitely let you do most of the talking, as I mentioned beforehand. Uh, Kelly, uh, Kelly had me as a professor, so she knows that I yammer, and so I got I got to watch my yammer and while, while we talk here, because uh, Dr. Cunningham is a is a pediatric clinical pharmacist here at, at Blank Children's Hospital, actually one of the top uh, pediatric clinical pharmacists I know, and so I'm very happy and honored that she took time during this incredibly busy time to talk about our our paper that we're going to review today, and uh, that is a paper that looks it's a meta analysis that was just recently published in JAMA Network, uh, looking at the comparison of acetaminophen and ibuprofen for the treatment of fever and pain in children younger than two years. So I think you know every every uh, pediatric uh, pharmacist, as well as every outpatient pharmacist, as well as anyone who has kids, is probably going to be interested in this in this in this talk. So before we get in, though, I do want to say thank you for listening, all you who are doing that. Thanks to the new listeners. Please go to where you uh, uh, get your podcasts and like us and spread the word. Get get the word around everyone that we're doing this. And again. And remember that we're sponsored by a CE Impact. Please go to the CE Impact website. Take a look at the numerous great CE packages they've got going on there, and uh, uh, sign up for this one because if you're going to listen to me yammer, you might as well get some 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 benefit from it. And and getting some CE while you're just driving into work, it seems to me to be a pretty uh, easy thing to do. So so without further ado, we'll get into the paper itself. So this was again a paper just recently published in, in JAMA uh, Open Network. Um, it was a systematic review and meta analysis, um, and it's it's obviously a, 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 a timely question that I think, again, any community pharmacist has probably been faced with before, any pediatric pharmacist, and then, of course, you know, anyone who has kids has probably wondered, you know, gee, if, you know, if I have a, I have a small child, which is, is best for, for them if I've got pain or fever? And so what they did in the, in the meta-analysis themselves is, is, is like most, most meta-analysis, they did a systematic review of the literature. They used all the major uh, uh, um, databases, you would think, so Medline and, and Embase. Et cetera, et cetera. They also use the Cochrane uh, collaboration uh, uh, as well, and basically uh, brought in any paper of any design. And that's important because they did not limit themselves to randomized control trials. Uh, people who read meta analyses will will say that's the best way to go. Of course, is if you have the, the luxury of just picking randomized control trials that, that gives you the highest level of, of evidence um, when you're designing your meta analysis. But for a subject like this, as you might imagine, uh, not everything. 
thing is going to be randomized control trials. And so I think appropriately, these these authors did uh, uh, include pretty much any design, you know, case series, case control studies, retrospective studies, things along those lines, um, and and basically, you know, brought all of that in together in, into their meta-analysis. Uh, uh, appropriately, they did use the PRISMA guidelines. If, uh, the, the PRISMA guidelines is, is pretty much a standardized checklist. If you if you ever plan on doing a meta-analysis in your career, you can actually go to their website and, and it really kind of walks you through exactly what you need to do to, 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 to uh, come up with a quality meta-analysis. And, and I'm glad to see they did that. Most journals now are kind of require that. Uh, they did do a fixed model analysis uh, to look at heterogeneity. That's always one of the big, big questions you have in meta-analysis is if you are bringing together 10 very disparate uh, papers together um, and you come out with an answer, if there is a lot of heter heterogeneity between the study methods or between the patients themselves, you have to ask, you know, you know, is this uh, result as good as it could be, as true as it could be? Those are all things you, that, that you'd want to do. The primary outcome in the study was, was uh, fever or pain within four hours of treatment onset. And then they had numerous secondary outcomes, um, uh, um, including fever at 24 hours, pain at four and 24 hours, and then adverse effects, uh, including uh, uh, you know, gastrointestinal bleeding, hepatotoxicity, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, what they basically found, they had, they had looked at, at 19 studies, 11 randomized studies, so not bad. The majority of the studies were randomized. Eight were not. Uh, gigantic cohort, 241,000 participants from seven countries and in a wide variety of, of health settings everywhere from hospital-based to community-based. And what they found was when they put all these patients in, in, in the meta-analysis pot, they found that, that uh, compared to, ibu or to acetaminophen, ibuprofen did uh, have a more uh, a better chance of reducing temperature at four hours. Um, and uh, they actually found a, a, a odds ratio of 0.38 for that. And with those kind of numbers, even with that, they had a fairly wide confidence interval of 0.08 to 0.67, but that was statistically significant. And they found moderate heterogeneity. The I2 was, was uh, or excuse me, I squared was, was 50%. So, you know, not terrible, but, but not great either sort of thing, kind of meh uh, heterogeneity. Uh, and they also found uh, at the same thing, uh, uh, basically at, at four to 24 hours as well. They also separated things out looking just at the randomized studies then versus the whole cohort and found kind of, kind of similar numbers as well. And as well as, as adverse effects were common. So, you know, at my glance of the paper, it, it, it seems that uh, uh, ibuprofen, uh, you know, kind of won the day as far as, is if I had to choose between um, uh, the, the two drugs in, in, a, in a child under two, especially for fever, uh, that might be what I'd want to pick. But I have very little experience in pediatrics, I'm the first to admit, except for the two children I raised myself with my, with my wife. So uh, wondering uh, what, uh, what Dr. Cunningham thinks. So, so Kelly, what, you know, you read the paper, what's, what's kind of your general take of, of, of this whole thing? Yeah, my general take really is I don't think that this would really change our clinical practice a ton in the inpatient setting. Um, you know, we use both equally on the inpatient side of things. Uh, younger kids, Tylenol definitely has a lot more safety data uh, in terms of, you know, I think the paper alluded to that, that there's a lot more safety data out there. Uh, with a risk of AKI, risk of potential bleed, especially in those kids that are younger, so neonates up to six months of age. You know, I know the paper talked a lot about how in the United States we have, uh, you know, our limitations for the use of ibuprofen is has a six-month cutoff mm -hmm. uh, for age. Uh, however, you know, other places like the UK, I believe it talked about how they use it at a much lower um a much lower age. Uh, 
But realistically, in the outpatient setting, I think that that would bring in a lot of dangers uh, to our patient population globally. Okay. And yeah, I, I've, I've heard that. I mean, again, that's, it's, it's kind of in the ether for me, just because again, I, I don't, I don't deal with this, but I've heard that, that the United States is among the more, shall we say, strict as far as what's in the, the, uh, the uh, recommendations uh, in, in both, you know, the, the uh, professional literature, as well as the over-the-counter stuff that parents are going to read as far as, as, as how, how, what age can you start, you know, ibuprofen and, and things like that. Um, is there, are there dosing differences too, have you found? Yeah, I mean, for Tylenol in particular, this article talked about how, you know, in the U.S., it's up to 90 per kilo per day. And that is what it was when I started practice. Uh, but with all the changes in Tylenol max dosing in the adult population, the U.S. also lowered the max Tylenol dose per day uh, in the United States as well. So if you look it up in a pediatric uh, reference like the Pediatric Dosage Handbook, the U.S. max per day recommended for infants and children is 75 per kilo per day, which is in contrast to what is mentioned in the article at 90. Um, and then neonates and premature neonates, the, age, uh, the dosing range is even lower between 40 and 75 per kilo per day. Um, and that's largely dependent upon the gestational age of the neonate. Do I? I mean, I would just assume this. You know, especially you know, premature neonates are, are probably at much higher risk for things like AKI. Is that true, or is that just me reading into things? No, absolutely. Premature neonates and even term neonates. Uh, you know, we use Ketorolac uh, down to two weeks of age now, based on some mm. off-label data in the hospital. Um, but the primary difference there is we now limit that. So in adults, we use Ketorolac for up to five days before you're at risk for you know before people get concerned about GI bleeding or. AKI um, in neonates and infants, there's a shorter duration that's what's recommended. So we usually will only use Ketorolac in those patients for 48 to 72 hours. But in that, during that time period, we do see a drop in platelets among those kids. We do mm. see a drop in urine output and an increase in creatinine. So all those things are things that we kind of monitor. Additionally, um, uh, some of you may be aware that we use IV ibuprofen for uh, patent ductus arteriosus in neonates to kind of close the PDA. Uh, one of the biggest side effects that we see of that is an increase in creatinine and a decrease in urine output as well as lower platelets. And those are some of our thresholds to even hold those medications and that patient population. So there's definitely the risk there. And we certainly see it more pronounced in the younger uh, kids when we're, when we're monitoring that stuff on the inpatient side of things. So that would be my largest concern, you know, if the U.S. adopted less stringent guidelines with allowing ibuprofen over the counter for less than six months of age would be a lot of that stuff on the outpatient basis. You may not have as much control over how long somebody's giving that to their child. A one-time dose is probably not going to cause harm, but if that parent is giving it every six hours or every eight hours around the clock, there is going to be a higher risk of potentially dehydration, AKI, AIN, and all of those things. So I definitely think that there is um, a little bit of risk there, particularly in the younger um, population. Right. I, you know, I, I this is I don't have much to base this on except just my 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 assumptions is that you know even though I think I think you know you go to buy you know ibuprofen you know drops or or you know acetaminophen drops or whatever you know and it has all the stuff on the package and you know and all this all these warnings on the back you know I have a sneaking suspicion that a lot of a lot of you know especially you know new new parents you know they've got a baby who's you know been up 24 hours crying and you know you know fever and the doc's like hey there's nothing we can do this is 
this virus, you know, just go and use Tylenol. And they hear from their cousin's brother's friend that ibuprofen works better. And they, you know, it doesn't matter if the patient's two months old, I'm going to give it anyway. I mean, you have to wonder how much that goes on in the real world anyway, with nobody ever asking, you know, you know, their, their, their pharmacist, their, their, their provider or anything like that. So I think you lower that even more and that that's even more, you know, Hey, you know, it's, it, it, apparently it's even safer than we thought, you know, sort of thing. So I, I certainly see your point there. One of the things they talk about in the meta-analysis is, is the, the, as, as a potential adverse effect is the potential of infection risk. Um, and, and, you know, this is something that, that even in the adult population kind of, you know, with, with COVID, right. When, when COVID first came out, it was like, there was this, this concern that, you know, if you took ibuprofen while you had COVID that, you know, that, that your, your outcomes were going to be worse. And that's been disproven of course, but that I think, you know, ibuprofen and nonsteroidals in general have largely had this kind of, uh, you know, you know, we're cousins of corticosteroids. So that, you know, since corticosteroids are immunosuppressive, that must mean nonsteroidals are immunosuppressive. What's your take on that in, in this study and, and in the pediatric population? I don't really buy into the infection link and risk with ibuprofen a whole lot. I mean, I think I agree with, I think it was included in the author's discussion that I think it's largely an association. I mean, as the study showed that ibuprofen does a much better job of uh, decreasing fever in a quicker time frame than acetaminophen. So I think in more severe infections, people are just more likely to use ibuprofen in those cases. Um, so I think it's more of uh, an association due to to the type of patients that were utilizing ibuprofen preferentially um, for. I mean, in kids in particular, I mean, fever is one of those things that, you know, we all know fever is not bad, but there are, you know, when it comes to keeping a child comfortable, uh, bringing down the fever is often one of those things that you can do. Uh, additionally, especially in younger children, uh, fever can actually clinically negatively impact your hemodynamics. So in a really severe infection, you know, keeping that fever under control plays a bigger role in terms of, you know, kind of maintaining uh, hemodynamic stability in, in some of those patients that have more severe, severe infections. So yeah, I don't really buy into that uh, infection uh, link or risk uh, a ton. And I, I don't think the literature out there is very strong either. So, I mean, I think it's great that the article talked about it because there is uh, there is some information out there regarding it. I, I don't think that I would put a whole lot of weight into it personally. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, but it does, and I, that's a nice segue into talking about, you know, the they, I think the authors of the meta-analysis did the best they could in assessing adverse effects. And and again, especially in non-randomized studies, it's, it's always challenging, uh, you know, to assess adverse effects. And even in randomized control trials, and I know you and I have read plenty of papers over the years where you know, they, they spend 95% of the article talking about how, you know, how great the drug is and three lines about, about adverse effects. And it's like, well, okay, well, did you guys even really assess for adverse effects and, and, and how much did you assess and things along those lines? And in, in this paper, you know, I think they, they tried their best and, and, and I think a priori, they said, look, these, you know, is a secondary uh, outcome. We wanted to take a look at, at, at the risks of all these, of all these, you know, you know, well-known non uh, adverse effects for non-steroidals and even kind of veering into stuff that you don't see too much in adults like you know asthma and wheezing and stuff like that and of course they didn't find a ton but uh, you know is is that because you know that that really isn't as big a deal as we think or is it just that the papers that they use just didn't really report it all that much and having read the meta-analysis and knowing what i know even you know even in the adult literature i, I tend to think the latter what, what's kind of your take on that 
Yeah, I mean, I agree. I think I think that's a lot of it is I, I think you hit the nail on the head in terms of I think a lot of it is is probably the type of studies that they're looking at in terms of being able to find that type of effect. I think um, globally, I think AKI, AIN is largely underreported with NSAIDs. I mean, I think the only time you're really going to notice it is if somebody's coming into the hospital and you're seeing that. So, you know, without really scavenging through all of those meta-analysis that they looked at in terms of that, I think it's going to be difficult to ascertain if there truly is a higher risk or not. And then in what patients does that really exist in? I mean, globally, uh, based on uh, pharmacologic mechanisms and that sort of thing, in a patient that is already dehydrated with high fevers, you know, like you might see in an influenza case, I would think that you would probably have a higher risk of AKI in those patients utilizing, you know, ibuprofen. And one-time dose is probably not going to have a significant impact, but now that you're scheduling it over and over and over for several days on end, I would say your risk uh, in, in that population is probably higher just based on, you know, the pharmaco pharmacologics of NSAIDs and, and their impact Right. on the kidney and renal plasma flow and, and all of that. So, I mean, yeah, I think it's likely under-recognized. And so, I mean, I don't, globally, I think though, ibuprofen and Tylenol are both very safe drugs, um, which is why they're both available over the counter, mm -hmm. um, particularly in that greater than six months of age. So, I mean, globally for, you know, a uh, general recommendation, you know, in terms of one over the other, I, I don't know if there's enough data to really, you know, say, no, you should always use Tylenol or no, you should always use ibuprofen. You know, I agree with that. And, 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 you know, i again, my, just my anecdotal experience with my own kids was, was that, you know, yeah, it seemed that ibuprofen and, you know, seem to be more powerful, at least with, with, with fever, it seemed to be more, more powerful with fever than, 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 uh, than, uh, Tylenol is this paper also attempted, I think, I think they, they did, uh, did, didn't do quite as good job talking about pain, um, you know, you know, and, and using it for acute pain. I, I, it seems like they were trying to do like, you know, multiple things at once with the meta-analysis It's like, why not just pick one, you know, one outcome because fever and pain really, I mean, yes, they're related, but they're really not the same thing. Um, you know, it, it, is that what you found as as well as is for both fe you know for fever and pain do you feel like ibuprofen in general tends to work faster maybe uh than, than tylenol does I would say globally, um, I think it kind of depends on the pain, and you've probably seen this in your adult population as well. I mean, we know that NSAIDs work better for bone pain. We know that that's better for, you know, chest tube pain and, you know, right. some of that type of stuff. But but globally speaking, I think it all kind of goes back to um, kind of what 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 you be asked for, you know, if you're in an outpatient setting, you know, what kind of recommendation are you going to make based on what the parents are telling you? And so, right. I mean, if the patient is basically just fussy and uncomfortable, Tylenol is probably a safer option globally. Um, if you're if you're talking about um, you know, that the, the patient has really high fevers, um, they haven't been able to, you know, lower it, or, you know, the patient is super uncomfortable based on a fever, I would absolutely probably give ibuprofen the nudge, especially if that child's over six months of age, uh, just given what the findings of this uh, study are, not to mention anecdotally nurses, parents, myself included, um, will we'll tell you that ibuprofen works quicker, tends to be more effective after one dose than Tylenol. And that definitely correlates with what the uh, what the article found. But generally speaking, if it's just like your patient's a little bit, you know, or your, your child's a little bit uncomfortable, um, you know, is a little bit fussy, um, but not really having high fevers and that sort of thing, Tylenol is probably your safer bet or first line in terms of, uh, you know, 
based on what this this article found and based on what we kind of know and speculate, I guess, with regarding the AKI risk and that sort of thing in kids. I mean, that's kind of how I would I would preferentiate it um, would okay. be based on kind of that. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I would tend to agree with you on that. So, you know, so it sounds like, I mean, you know, it sounds like your, your, your take on this was, you know, it was, uh, you know, it's at least a fairly well done, uh, meta-analysis. It, it, it didn't really give you any surprises. In fact, it seemed to, 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 you know, corroborate what you've seen both clinically and, and, and probably in, in your own personal life about ibuprofen versus Tylenol. And I think you and I both agree that if, if there was a real strike to this, to the, to the meta-analysis, it's just that I wish they would have done a better job at, 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 at reporting or at least trying to find adverse effects and trying to try, trying to relate that to, to the efficacy of, of, of both medications. So that's good to hear. One, since I got you here and we're kind of wrapping up on time, one final question that since I got a pediatric expert here is, you know, a question I think every pharmacist has ever been asked at least once in their life is, you know, is it best to switch off? You know, you've got some, you know, you've got a, a two-year-old who's got, you know, a ear infection or, or, you know, the flu or something like that. And, you know, you know, should you do Tylenol, ibuprofen, Tylenol, ibuprofen? What's your kind of take on that? That is the age-old question. Um, there's definitely uh, there's definitely a lot of opinions out there. Uh, globally, uh, the American Academy of Pediatrics has said that there's not really an advantage to alternating ibuprofen and Tylenol, and it actually it tends to lead to a higher incidence of probably um, medical errors, especially in the outpatient uh, community where you're talking to parents in terms of just trying to remember what drug you actually gave last and how much did you give since dosing is different for both. Um, for both of the medications. And so the general rule from, or the general guideline from the American Academy of Pediatrics is alternating is not um, more effective. It is not, as, it's not a practice that's, uh, that's recommended uh, in the outpatient setting. That being said, in the inpatient setting, do we do it? Yeah, we do it. Um, again, it's a little bit more controlled when you have nurses right. uh, administering medication and that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, there's really no, there's not been any solid articles or, or information that would say that it's, it's more effective by alternating versus just choosing one. I think it just makes people feel better that you're giving something more frequently and right. that you're exactly. quote unquote doing something. So yep. um, I think that that's more what that goes back to. I think so, right. Yeah. You have to do something, which of course we, we could, could be the, the, could be the theme of the entire COVID year, right? We got to do something. <laughs> right. So, well, I want to thank uh, Kelly. Thank you very much uh, for, for taking time to, to come here and, and, and giving us your expertise and, and uh, uh, you know, I really appreciate the time. We're all super busy. So thank you uh, very much uh, to Dr. Kelly Cunningham for coming on uh, Game Changers and, and uh, again, giving her expertise. Hopefully, we will do more PED stuff in the future, and uh, I will hopefully uh, be calling you again to, 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 to give us your expertise. So I appreciate very much you being on. Thanks, Jeff. All right. So uh, before we wrap things up, I do want to give uh, our, our sponsor, CE Impact, a chance to talk about some of the great programs they have, and they're going to do that right now. Game Changers discusses clinical guidelines and pharmacotherapy trends that significantly impact practice. Game Changers is produced and accredited by CE Impact and hosted by Dr. Jeff Wall. New episodes are released each week and available for pharmacy continuing education credit to CE Impact subscribers. CE Impact subscription service brings you the CE you need on the topics that matter the most. Check out the link to sign up in the show notes. Use code PODCAST for a Pharmacy Podcast Network discount. 
So once again, thanks. My thanks to Dr. Kelly Cunningham uh, for for helping me uh, wade through this meta analysis. I think uh, you know it, I agree that that it looks like if you especially uh, um, are, are also as kind of a one time thing, it seems like ibuprofen seems to work faster. But uh, as as Dr. Cunningham definitely pointed out, um, I, I tend to I think we tend to think that nonsteroidals don't have side effects in people under the age of 65, and I, it definitely sounds like from her perspective that ain't true, and and I suspect that isn't true, and 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 so. You know, uh, I, I think we need to respect uh, uh, nonsteroidals. Doesn't I mean we don't use them, and I think they are pretty safe in, in this in this patient population. But especially in in children under two, I think uh, uh, being careful about about their overuse and and, and definitely watching uh, for you know lower urine output, especially in an outpatient basis, may be your your best way to go to try and figure out if something's going on. So uh, thanks again to everyone for listening to this episode. Again, please head over to wherever you listen to your podcast. Give us a like. Head over to CE Impact. Please uh, help us support and keep us on the air uh, and uh, we'll catch you guys next week hopefully everything's safe and you're staying safe and stuff like that and just remember time flies i don't know where it's going but the most important day is today we'll catch you guys next week